Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards. I'm Jordan Rich, and we're taking a bit of a departure from our usual format. In a special two-part series, Larry and I will be discussing the impact of depression, first in his life, and then in part two in mine. Depression is a worldwide phenomenon, affecting millions across the globe. Often it goes undiagnosed and untreated. It's Larry's hope that by sharing our personal stories, we'll get you to focus a bit more on the issue. And as is the case with great storytellers such as Larry Rutman, we'll be taking you on a journey through life, one in which we'll realize we all have a lot in common. Larry, we've been talking, of course, about friends, about connections, contacts, acquaintances, and very close colleagues. We're going to be focusing on one in particular today, Dr. John Caulfield, and a related issue that is very personal to you, and uh, I might even chime in because I've got a connection to it as well. Who was John Caulfield? Dr. John Caulfield, when he lived in the next house up to around 1990, he was a research physician at Harvard Medical School, had his own lab studied tropical diseases like schistosomiasis, which affects eyesight. He went to China, as a matter of fact, a couple of times on that. Well-respected, from Baltimore originally, married to Joanne Caulfield, his first wife. They had three children, two girls and a boy, Patrick, who still lives in the house uh, next door, uh, now married to Eileen Lee, and they have a, a young daughter who's lovely child of three years of age who's got a personality hmm. and looks that would uh, – that she's just a, a wonderful, expressive young child of, of high intelligence, obviously. And um, John and I um, didn't become friends immediately when he moved there in the late 70s, but not long after when we met at a party given across the street at the uh, home of – uh, the doctor who lived there with his wife, he's a doctor and she a psychiatrist, on the back porch at that party, we struck up a conversation and after that we started a friendship. And that friendship uh, exists to this very day, even though we moved away from Boston almost 30 years ago. He called me out to the West Coast to be the best man uh, at his uh, wedding to his second wife and uh, that was a great trip. And uh, also we... Uh, we're just part of the family. Um, was part of the family next door, still part of his family out in California. And uh, John is a unusual person. Uh, you know, I'd call him. Uh, you know, a lot of people think he's overly expressive. In the, he's an Irishman, red hair at the time. Now it's gray, but he, uh, a lot of people thought he was a little bit off the wall because. Um, you know, he liked to imbibe a little bit. One time we were at a musical performance at the New England Conservatory, and he actually went up on stage and carried on a little. And when we were sometimes at Symphony Hall listening to music, we both love music, he would call across six aisles. We sometimes were sitting apart at intermission to say something ribald about the performance. Uh, I love that word. I'm so glad you used that word. Haven't heard it in a long time. Ribald. Very good. <laughs> I didn't know I was still in my vocabulary, Yeah, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And uh, so that um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think as, as I'm telling this, the name of the doctor who lived across the street, which will come to me because he was a wonderful person, just died about a year ago in his late 70s. I think I talked about him. He used to go over to the Ukraine. Um 
Yes, I believe we have mentioned a doctor that did yes, that. We, yeah. uh, yes, we have. And uh, so I'm sorry. that. But anyway, it'll come to me. Let's continue with this. So John and I, you know, we would do a lot of things together. Even though I was in the legal profession and dressed in threads, and even though he was dealing with the rats and other mm -hmm. mice in his laboratory during the day and dressed in no threads, uh, we would go around town dressed very casually during the weekends and do all sorts of things, go to performances, go to a place called Looney Tunes, which I still think exists. I love that place, old record shop, man, right on Boylston. Is that yeah, what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. I spent a lot of my youth there. Yeah, did you really? Of course. You and I have so much in common, Looney Tunes. Yeah, Looney Tunes. Great place. We took go over there, and um, so that, uh, and we were, you know, Looney Tunes was a good place for the both of us because we were sort of loony, mm -hmm. and uh, we just had a really nice relationship. And whereas his, oh, John had great friends, but some of my straight friends couldn't accept him quite as readily because of his, uh, because of the behavior that he had, because he had an unusual... Eccentric. Eccentric, absolutely, yeah. personality. But to me, that was mana from heaven, because I like eccentric people. Right. And he was, you know... I, I enjoyed his persona. Sorry to interject, Larry. You spoke of Dr. David Link in another podcast who lived across the street. I believe his was the name you were trying to recall, uh, the man who went over to Ukraine to vaccinate people there some years ago. But he and Joanne ran into bad times, and uh, ultimately it resulted in a divorce. And she essentially put him out of the house. I mean, it was clear that they, she didn't want to live together. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, time has been kinder to him since then than it has been to her, although that's another story and another person in the group that I've given you here. Her name was Joanne Caulfield. Her maiden name, Apgar, A-P-G-A-R. Her father was a military man. She moved around a lot during her youth, but she was a cardiac catheterization nurse at the uh, Brigham for a long time, very talented, and I, she too, extremely eccentric. And uh, I, I wrote about her, mm -hmm. the last of these. Her dress was unbelievable. I mean, she was, she was theatrical. She was always on stage. And, but uh, let's not talk about Joanne, we'll talk about it at the time. So Joanne, uh, so that uh, um, I think that uh, John became depressed. And he decided that he needed some help. Mm -hmm. And um, he he signed up with a, uh, I think there's no need to mention the psychiatrist's names. No, you don't need to do that. No, no, but he, uh, he went to a psychiatrist that lived reasonably close by. Coincidentally, I became depressed at the same time. A different issue altogether it had nothing to do with marriage. It had to do with writing. I, you know, I had a, I had a, a column. Uh, well, no, originally, uh, yeah, no, it, it really, you know, I said it probably could have been described since it happened at fifty-eight. It probably could have been described as a midlife crisis. Midlife crisis, burnout. Sometimes they burnout. Whatever yeah, it was, yeah. it affected me quite severely, and that was a time for friends too. Because uh, no less than a guy than Paul Sugarman, who is probably the 
most successful, well-known lawyer in Boston for the last half of the 20th century, still practices, and is my age, about 91. But Paul is a wonderful guy. Grew up, you know, ordinary circumstances in Mattapan, uh, and uh, became, uh, you know, a terrifically well-known attorney. And we first met on a case, I think I mentioned it, um, early in our careers. Uh, and he helped me, and he had people on his staff, like Steve Hoffman, help me. And he was, uh, so it was a good time for friends. But in any event, um, I found depression to be, you'll tell uh, Jordan, if you would, what it was like for you. As far as I was concerned, um, the feeling you get from depression is self-confidence flows out of you. Uh, you sometimes don't want to face the world. Sometimes you stay in bed too late. Sometimes your wife has to get you out of bed and get you going. I, I went to the office at that time. Even simple conversations about some cases, I felt I couldn't take part in in, a, in the mm. way that I knew I should have and could have, even though I carried on with them. I had an assistant at that time, uh, Phyllis Schacht, who's an attorney, and she lives in Sharon, was very helpful. So was Kathy. I had a lot of people in my life that I mentioned. Kathy Janice, my secretary I just spoke of, was very helpful. But this happened in at age 58, late in the 1980s, and it really was something I, I couldn't believe how it made me feel. Now, I don't think I you really feel sort of helpless and without your usual energy, and it's with you every minute mm. of every day. It just doesn't go away, mm -hmm. and it's frightening. And I can understand that people do away with themselves, like uh, who— the guy that was the great cook who did away with himself? Oh, yeah, the uh, uh, CNN uh, uh, television personality. Well, there's so many. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know— Well, you, you say to yourself when some of these people do away with themselves— Boy, that person seems so happy at it. Such a well, let me just say this, and I won't—I don't want to step on your story because it's your day and the sun here. But my uh, occurrences was back in the '90s when I was in my late 30s, so it can strike anybody at any time. Let's put it that way. But you described it exactly the way it it uh, worked through its system to me, in terms of losing your joie de vivre, losing your sense of humor your confidence, all that stuff, having low energy. And people would not believe it when I told them later that I had it. And people would, hearing this now, people can't believe it that you went through it because you're such an upbeat guy. It's got nothing to do with being upbeat. It's got nothing to do with being a happy person. It is, a, I believe, a medical condition brought on by stress and so forth. So how did you get treated? What did you do for it? Yeah, let me say a little more about what, what you just said. I think that um, <clears throat> I think maybe I should state the bottom line first. Who would believe that the change agent, that depression was a change agent leading me to a better life? The title of the book you have in front of you right now is A Life Lived Backwards. Well, what that means is that the best part of my life turned out to be at the end of my life, and it's still going on. 
and I called it an existential triad of friendship, maturation, and inquisitiveness. Well, existential means that depression could have killed me in one way or another, not by suicide. I don't think that would have... No, but it opened up your mind and heart and soul. It did, at least it did for me. It, it, was a, it was a new point in my life where I started fresh after I got through it. Well, yes. For me. And so, so the existential triad of friendship, of these three things in my life so important, friendship, maturation, and inquisitiveness, all came to the fore after depression, and I think depression triggered my growing up, finally. Mm. Um, it, I think it, it made me realize how lucky I was to have friends and eager to make more, and inquisitiveness, well, here I am writing books. Well, and- this podcast, this conversation that is ongoing with you and me, two friends for a long time— is the greatest example of self-reflection and examination and retelling. And and it, you reflect on what happened with the new sense of understanding, I think. You, and I know you so well now, uh, I reflect on everything I do is a reflection of what I learned through the Depression, as horrible as it was. And I would not wish it on anybody. Your point about it being never-ending, you'd wake up in the morning and for a few seconds – you think, oh, it's a brand oh, shoot, here we go again. You know, a few seconds of peace before it settles in. But then when you start to heal, and that's the point I want you to make too because you have obviously healed. When you come through it and then get beyond it, it can, it can offer you many great insights and a springboard. Well, it can. Um, I think that – what did I do for it? Um, I went to the same psychiatrist that John did. He was a character in his own right. I mean, I can't tell his story, and I don't even know whether he's still alive. Uh, but he, uh, I think he was, he was a, a good psychiatrist uh, in that he, he seemed to, we related very well. You know, a lot of these guys, I think, can just sit in a chair and listen to you, and they're not exactly frighten you off, but you don't get, they try to, to avoid maybe any personal feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's so great. I think the talking therapy, as it's called, when you speak to a psychiatrist, works better. Um, first of all, it's private between you and him. That's a big advantage. You can say what say whatever the hell you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. And I think that um, I think that I mean I don't think you have to become arms around each other friends, but I think it does help if there's if there's some feeling there. Like this guy, um, you know, I would say to him, uh, "Do you think that uh, this is?" This is all over. Uh, you think I'll recover from this? He says, yeah. Um, what, do you think I'm concentrating too much on myself? Yeah, probably, but yeah, yeah. you're okay. You, you'll, you'll get through it. You, you have a lot of good points. Uh, in other words, he didn't, he, didn't, uh, he didn't look upon me as a loony. Uh, no, or as a loser, which is important. It's not a character flaw. That's the pink thing that people have to remember. Um, and it has affected millions of people throughout the uh, the course of humankind, and it will go on to affect people. The good news is we have ways to heal and we have ways to treat that we didn't have. You know, Abraham Lincoln suffered from melancholia, which, of course, was Same clinical thing. depression, with no opportunity to take any kind of medication or have any 
speaking therapy that would work. So did you take medication, Larry? I did take medication. And I would let me say a word about suicide. We were reflecting that a lot of people who have come up with depression – and you wouldn't think they would. Uh, Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. Thank you. Yeah. Now this guy. Late on the. This guy had everything to live for, and in his last days, he was as happy as ever. And the next thing you do, he hung himself. I said to I said to Lois when I'm trying, why did he commit suicide? He probably went out, and they had a drinking fest, and uh, he loved food. He loved to drink, and he probably the, the alcohol probably made him a little sad, and he began thinking about his divorce and all the things. He did wrong in his life and forgot to think about all the things he had done right. Or he might have been suffering in silence. A lot of people put on a show and a, and a mask you know, to suffer and not share it with anyone, and that's the worst kind of feeling in the world. Well, I think I was lucky to be – you know, I'm not a drinker. Mm. I'm not a cigarette smoker. Same here. I'm, I'm not a drug addict. I've never taken drugs. I've never been drunk. And I kept eating, and Lois said to me, you never met a meal you didn't like. <laughs> she said, you won't stop eating just because of this. And she's probably right. I think that eating, I think any one of those other things could have affected me very mm. badly, but they weren't there. And I was eating, and, and I always thought that people said, you'll get through this. And I said to myself, I don't want to come out of this a physical wreck. I want to stay healthy. So I ate, and I think I do have a lot of joie de vie. I think I love life. Oh, my God. There's nobody I know at your age who's as vibrant and as upbeat and funny. But I think the thing that you did that I commend you for, and I commend myself, I pat myself on the back, is as smart as I am, as smart as you are, as witty, urbane, etc., you knew and I knew at the time in my life we had to ask for help. We couldn't do it alone. Oh, no. Could not do it alone. Yeah. And I was, you know, fortunate to have those friends, to have Lois by my side, uh, things like that. As far as suicide is, is concerned, I never entertained that. Um, I used to ask the psychiatrist, you know, about it, but um, I never. Did you? Un- but you gained an understanding of how it could get so bad that somebody might lose. Oh yeah. The urge to live. Oh yeah, it's yeah. so terrible. Terrible. Horrific. Mm-hmm. Is the word I used? I think, in the it's a it's a horrible experience. So I think uh, you asked me about drugs. Yeah, I took some drugs. Some of them, some of them were tough. You know, they don't work for everybody. Now you took them back in the eighties, right? If you did, that I uh, uh, no, uh, nineteen. Yeah, nineteen late late eighties, really. Days. So the SSRIs were relatively new at that point. Uh, yeah, some of them, like there was one I remember, Dzipramine. So when I took the Zipramine, it made my heart start beating like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I called the psychiatrist and I said, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. The psychiatrist said, no, but that is scary, but it'll go away. Uh, some of them had bad effects like that. And the Zipramine, I don't think, is used anymore. Um, but I um, I think that about um, when, it, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to drugs, um, you know, and one of the guys that treated me, over at McLean, I used to go visit mm-hmm. Dr. Jonathan Cole. He's very famous. Uh, he's dead now. But Jonathan Cole was a, uh, a great psychiatrist, a great pharmaceutical psychiatrist. And uh, they say that he <laughs> – no, I went, I'm not going to tell that. 
but he was a very uh, low-key, famous. And one time when I talked to him, he had an Indian psychiatrist in the room with him. And I said something, and uh, Jonathan turns to the other guy, and he said, you see, somebody can become uh, mature. Somebody can gain maturity at any age. <laughs> and uh, I mean, maybe I was 80 then, I don't know. Yeah. So that, you know, that was a nice thing to hear. But, um, yeah, I think that you do need help. Some of these, um, I, be, I thought to myself, why did I, what was there in my nature that caused depression? Was it something to do with the way I grew up or was it my parents or what, it, what, it, what it could have been, we find out from studying drugs, is that some people, there were a couple of substances, neoepinephrine mm -hmm. and uh, the other one, um, the other uh, bodily substance that is created that if you don't have enough of them, they can serotonin. Serotonin. They can. That's right. Serotonin. They can make you depressed. Right. And that there are certain drugs that put these into your system. Well, that but rebalance your your Re chemical makeup. It. Yeah. And so yeah. the, the the you know it could be that this depression came from nothing more than the imbalance. Right, and that's very possible. However, you discover that uh, your thoughts do uh, have an impact on how you feel. Anytime when you're healthy, but when you're depressed, your thoughts are magnified, and, and it becomes, it, li it literally is. Even for mild cases, it's very tough. I called it pushing a rock up a hill every single day for for months and months. How long did yours last, Jordan? Um, my first episode occurred, and I was terribly overworked and stressed out, burned out uh, when I was 37. That lasted for about a year and a half, uh, off and on, and it would come back off and on, and I didn't follow a regimen that was routine with with uh, uh, medication until much later. And I also will say, and you've talked a lot about good doctors, but we've also mentioned not so good doctors. There are just like mechanics in, in the world. There are great ones and there are ones eh, not so good. So you have to do some shopping to get the right mix. You do. And when you find that person, you want to you know, savor that relationship. So uh, it, off and on, I struggled a bit for, I'd say, 10 years, off and on, off and on. Well, my experience was that this this happened off and on for about uh, a little about a year and three or four months. Mm -hmm. Off and on um, in that year and three and four months, I had two four month episodes and one two month episode. So it took about ten months of that time. And oddly enough, in the interim periods, I felt fine. I thought it wouldn't come back, but it came back once. Then it came back again. In the years after that. Uh, in the early 90s, I think I was on medication, and I still, maybe I forget, I think I might have been seeing a psychiatrist, not all the time, but maybe every month or something like that, so that I was feeling better. Uh, and But I think for the first three or four years, I was on tenterhooks because I didn't know it would come back. Mm. And it did come back when I had some sort of a problem by the, I was in my publishing career, and I had a great column in uh, the local newspaper. People liked it, and uh, the editor changed. Another person came in and cut it off. And that uh, that would not throw me into a, a depression now, but it did then. That lasted two months during a hot summer. After that, 
Um, since then, which was around 2002, I don't think I have felt bad any day, any single day since. You probably felt sadness. That's the normal feeling when you lose someone or when something doesn't go right. It's, it's far beyond routine emotional movement. It's sadness with a pit that doesn't seem uh, you can crawl In a out magnifier. Of. Yeah. Well, I want to say this, Jordan. So it went away. And you, you're right. Of course, there are events that make you feel sad. But, you know, you can tell normal feelings of being down from ones that are, that are abnormal. So, but since that time, about 20 years ago, I don't think I've really felt threatened. And a strange thing happened. I started my authorial career around that time, hmm. 2000. Well, Larry, do you think there's a connection between creative energy and, and so many artists have dealt with some kind of depression, some form of illness along the way that has either helped them or hurt them? Well, I think when you're doing something and you get some sort of acceptance for it, um, you know, I haven't become famous or anything, but people respect me as a writer. There's no question about that. And, and, and I'm still producing at 91, and I could become considerably be more well-known. Not that that's the object. Uh, I think the main object is giving back something to your fellows. And I think I have. I think yeah. that the baseball book... It will be remembered for a long time. I think the one on musicians, which is unusual for a layman to come up with, I think that'll be remembered. So, and I say this in my books that I'm making a contribution, as I'm sure you feel the same way. And I think that if you're doing that and you're a part of the scene, so to speak, and you're not sitting in a, in a rest home wondering what to do mm. that day, but you have plenty to do, that makes a tremendous difference. The other aspect of it for me was uh, uh, immediately becoming much less judgmental about what other people are dealing with. Not to excuse behavior by any stretch. You're responsible for your actions. But you can kind of understand when somebody is so nasty or mean or frightened that is more behind the scenes, behind the eyeballs. So I, I came out of it with a sense of um, – more empathy, more understanding, not for not excusing behavior, but understanding it. Same here. Absolutely same here. You want to know something, Jordan? During midlife, like anybody else, I would get upset with people. Some people didn't do this, didn't do that, whatever. I still get upset with them, and I think to myself, I'll write an email. But I never do that. <laughs> I, I always deal with it empathetically as well as diplomatically, mm -hmm. and I don't hold grudges. It's a great feeling. I don't sit there saying, why didn't I just go on to the next thing? And another thing is that um, when you do that, you, you can, you know, your friends become better friends because you're not sitting there telling them you didn't do this, you didn't do that, um, and you just got to deal with things in life. And what, I, what, what happened to me... From that time, about 20 years ago, is that I feel depression made me actually grow up, that um, life changed for me um, when I started writing and um, when I realized that um, the end result of depression was that I grew up. Let me quote you something from my uh, memoir because, after all, when you write something, you clear it up after you write a first draft and you put in exactly what your feeling is. 
And uh, what I wrote is, uh, that is one facet of why I speak of living my life backwards. In my mind, to a greater or lesser extent, I believe my depressions occurring to a usually positive and optimistic but relatively immature person can be likened to the tests of fire and water undergone by Tamino and Pamina in Mozart's The Magic Flute, hmm. whereby they emerged fully formed and ready to deal with whatever the world confronted them uh, to bar their onward path. In retrospect, I can say that experiencing depression was anything less than horrific. I can't say that experiencing depression was anything less than horrific. I can say that surviving it and thereafter being increasingly able to make my dreams come true because of it make depression an unlikely change agent. Bingo. Right on the nose. Well done. And, you know, listen, we could talk longer about depression, but I would say to anybody suffering from depression as they listen to this uh, is that um, it doesn't necessarily have to turn into a positive uh, feeling making you uh, mature. You might already be mature. I was a late bloomer for sure. But I can say this, that it ends. Yes. It's not forever. Yes. It does go away. Or as people said to me when I was suffering depression, who were in the mental health field, but not treating me, but friends, they would say, and we would take walks, and they would say, it'll go away. Yeah, and, and there is hope and help. That's the important thing. We're living proof, you and me. How about that, huh? Yeah, we look pretty good. <laughs> so tell me something, Jordan. Um, you know, if there's more you want to talk about on this, we can do it. I, I think it worth it's worth doing another segment on it because there are other aspects that we didn't touch on, obviously. I'm game if you are. Yeah, yeah whenever you say. I mean, <laughs> I think it's an important subject because I think depression is fairly common. And it, now we read about all the depression that kids have, teenagers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rampant and the medical world is going to have to deal with it, uh, not just with COVID, that caused a lot of issues, but in general. Yeah, and the, and the other thing too, Larry, the, the public service aspect of this is having other people know that they're not alone, that guys like you and me have had it, have dealt with it, we know what it feels like and we got through it. So I'm here and game for another one. Hey out there, my number is in the, uh, <laughs> uh, on my website or something. Or, uh, LarryRuckman.com, call him. Thanks, my friend. No charge. <laughs> You've been listening to a special edition of A Life Lived Backwards, part one of a two-part episode on depression. Larry just shared his story. In our next episode, we turn the tables and he interviews me about my experience. Thank you for listening.